All right. Thanks so much for coming out tonight. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Had a great time with the staff this afternoon, which is a lot of fun, which was a lot of fun and really excited about tonight. So the way I want to organize the time is sort of have two sessions tonight. The first will be kind of like a biblical view of productivity and then have time for questions. So be thinking of questions. I love questions, especially difficult questions. And you can actually ask a question on anything. It can certainly be productivity, but you could ask a question on the problem of evil or the Trinity. Why isn't the Trinity a contradiction? Because I love theology and no question is therefore out of bounds or off limits. And no question is too hard. I love difficult questions. So really, anything you're struggling with when it comes to the scriptures or productivity, feel free to ask. So that said, though, I know most questions will be on productivity, which is great. So be thinking of questions you might want to ask. And then so the, I'll talk for about 45 minutes or so. Then we'll have some questions. And then we'll have another session after that with some questions. And then we'll be out of here about 8.30 or so. So that's the setup for tonight. I got into productivity out of my own need, really. I had gone to seminary and learned a lot about theology. In fact, I started learning about theology well before seminary. I started reading my senior year of the summer of my senior year, after my senior year of high school. I got into reading about the Bible, which I loved, and I started learning so much. And in college, I would organize my time to be done with my classes by noon, and then I would spend the rest of the day reading theology and writing articles to remember what I was learning and talking about it with my friends. So, and this was at a secular university, so college was a very theologically intensive time for me, which was awesome. I learned so much. And then for fun, I'd debate atheists and Jehovah's Witnesses. And so that forced me to really sharpen my thinking and de develop a very integrated worldview. And then I went to seminary because I wanted to prepare for ministry and develop my thinking further. But after seminary, my first full-time job was at Desiring God Ministries. So how many people have heard of John Piper and Desiring God? So that was where my first full-time job was after seminary. And immediately, though, I realized there was a gap in my seminary preparation. I had not been taught how to get things done. And that was a big problem because my first assignments really out of seminary in my new full-time job at Desiring God were huge. They were way more than any single person should have been given. We didn't totally know what we were doing. And my assignments were, number one, launch John Piper nationally on the radio. So research and launch a a nationwide radio program, and then at the same time, run the web department and redesign the website. So these were huge tasks, and I wasn't equipped to know how to get them done, to know how to organize what I was doing. So what I said is, well, I've always liked to read, and that's how I learned theology. I'm going to apply that same, that same approach to productivity. So David Allen's book, Getting Things Done, had just come out at that time. Who's familiar with Getting Things Done? It's an awesome book, one of the best books on productivity, and I learned most of my productivity thinking initially from that book. And it helped me develop a system which I used to stay on top of things and launch that radio program and redesign the website and stay organized while I was doing it. 
But there was one problem with how I was doing things. A lot of times I would be working 90-hour weeks, which I actually enjoyed, but that pace is simply not sustainable. You can't keep that up for too long. And oftentimes I was pulling all-nighters. My record is three all-nighters in a row. <clears throat> my personal record, I think I did that twice because I simply had so much work to do. Well, realizing this was not sustainable, I realized I had to update my productivity approach in one way or another. I had to bring in a place for prioritizing. Up to that time, I was basically doing everything I thought of because I was keeping all these lists and if it was on a list, I'd do it. But I realized if I was gonna reduce the number of hours I'm working, I had to bring in a place for prioritization. And that's where Stephen Covey came in. How many people have heard of Stephen Covey? So he is the other great productivity thinker of our era. And unfortunately, he passed away just a few years ago. He was 79, and there was a, he, had a, he was in a bicycle accident. But he really focuses on the importance of priorities and knowing your mission and values. And that helped me bring a, a kind of leveler to the way I handled my tasks. It allowed me to prioritize and exclude and bring my workload down. But there was one other thing that I was missing in my system. And that came about, I discovered that in part because of a dualistic perspective uh, among some of the Christians that I was working with. And by dualism, I mean affirming the importance of the spiritual, but not affirming the importance of the everyday, of the so-called secular side of life. So some of these people would say to me, why are you learning about productivity? Implying that it's not super spiritual and I should focus all my time on theology. And I tried to ask myself, well, what is good? What's, what's good about what they're trying to say? It's coming from a dualistic point of view, which I don't agree with, but <clears throat> there's probably something good behind what they're saying. And what I discovered was that the heart behind what they were saying was make sure to think about this in a gospel-centered way. Because most of the good productivity thinking is by secular thinkers. And that's great. We need to learn from secular thinkers. That's a gift of God's common grace. And actually a Christian perspective on anything recognizes the value of secular thinking and tries to learn from it. But we can't stop there. We have to go beyond it. So what I realized from this pushback is I need to go even further than David Allen and Stephen Covey. I need to think about this explicitly from a biblical point of view. So that's when I started diving in to try and understand the biblical foundations behind getting things done. And what does the Bible teach about how we ought to go about getting things done? And then that, of course, is what I've pulled together for this book, which a lot of, a lot of you have and a lot of you have seen. And I call it gospel-driven productivity. That's just a fancy name to try and remember the concepts. And what I want to do tonight is present to you Let's hope this works. Let's see here. Okay, so these are my slides. Okay, sound looks like it's working. That is awesome. So here's my aim. What I want to do tonight, I want to show you that the gospel changes the meaning of productivity in some surprising ways and how this impacts the way we go about everything in our lives. Ministry, our ministries, our professions, our home lives, our community lives, secular work, everything. The gospel affects all of life and the gospel changes everything. <coughs> and most specifically, I want to look at how the gospel changes the way we get things done and give you a theological vision for understanding your productivity. 
why it matters, and how to be productive in a gospel-centered way. Specifically, what I want to do is ask three questions and then talk about one other thing. The three questions are this. Does God even want us to be productive? What does it mean to be productive? What is the best way to be productive? Those are the three questions. And then the one other thing is a few practical tips. So what I want to do is equip you tonight with a vision of productivity and some practical tips. And both matter immensely. One of the in people who endorsed my book, Mark Sanborn, who's a great business thinker, captured the essence of this really well in what he wrote for the back of the book. He said, productivity is more than a set of skills. It's a worldview. And so one of my challenges for you tonight is to transform already the way you think about productivity. It's easy for us to think of productivity as being a set of skills, how to get your email inbox to zero every day, how to handle interruptions, how to handle meetings, how to organize your task lists, and all of that is very important, but that's not all there is to productivity. In fact, it's not the heart of productivity. At the heart of productivity and a productive life is a correct worldview. In fact, a gospel-centered worldview. And all the tactics need to be anchored in this worldview. And in fact, if you have the worldview right, but don't have all the tactics, tactics in place, you can still be very productive because your worldview governs so many of your decisions that it makes up in many ways for a failure in some of the tactics. Both are important, but worldview is the aspect that's most overlooked. And worldview is where we most fully see the impact of the gospel. So that's what we're going to look at first, a vision for productivity in a God-centered, gospel-driven way, and then we'll look at some tips. So the first question is, does God want you to be productive? And it can seem like the answer would be obvious, right? Well, of course he does. But actually, I would receive pushback on this. Sometimes there is this notion that it's not very spiritual to care about productivity, about getting things done. We should care about Bible study and prayer and preaching the gospel. Should we really care about getting things done? And of course, the answer is absolutely, God does want us to be productive. In fact, we can say Jesus demands a return on our lives. That's productivity. Jesus demands a return on our lives. Now, how do we know that? And I think the best place to go to see this is the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Check this out. This is really incredible. So at the end of it, here's what happens. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's productivity. The servant received five talents and he gave back to the Lord five more talents. That's the definition of productivity. What we see here is the Lord doesn't simply want us to give back to him what he had given us. He wants us to give back to him more than he gave us. Now, I don't mean doing that in our own power as though we can give anything to God as though you know, we have first given to him. It's in the power of the spirit. But nonetheless, what we see is we are to take what he has given us and turn it into performance, turn it into results for his kingdom. Already though, what we start to see is a, a change in the meaning of productivity because this is very interesting. 
productive things we see from here are things to which the Lord will say, well done. The essence of a productive life is a life to which Jesus says to you, well done. So what we see is actually Jesus is the ultimate judge of productivity. And this helps us immediately see the importance of a gospel-driven approach because secular books don't go there. They can't go here because they don't have a category for God in their thought. And really that can easily, that, that can lead to a tragedy. Because for example, the aim of most secular productivity approaches is personal peace and affluence. So the aim is peace of mind and having a successful life. And a successful life is usually defined in terms of <clears throat> having all the money you want, having the career you want, having everything going well. And there's nothing wrong with those things in themselves, but the problem is they aren't all that life is about. And they're not ultimately what life is about. What life is about is doing the will of God and pleasing God. And you can have all those things, but if you don't, if you don't have them for the glory of God, and if you don't do your work for the glory of God, you aren't ultimately productive because God is the measure of productivity. That's why in the book, there's actually an evangelistic thrust in part one, because I feel like the issue of productivity gives us a great gateway into discussions with non-Christians that are relevant to them because everyone cares about productivity because everyone has to deal with this. So it's relevant to them, but it very naturally points to God because the, the minute you're talking about productivity, you're in the realm of values and mission. What is productive? What, what does it mean to get the right things done? And we can totally come in at that point and say, well, to be productive means to get the right things done, which means the things that God wants done, which means concern for productivity ultimately leads to, points to the importance of God and the role that he ought to play in our lives. So immediately what we're beginning to see is you can't ultimately be productive with God, without God. Huh, that would be a bad way to put it. Can't be productive with God. You can't be productive without God. He is the ultimate judge of our productivity. Now, what someone might say, though, is, yeah, God wants us to be productive, but he doesn't want us to learn about productivity practices, about strategies and tactics for getting things done. That's just too earthly. It seems secular. doesn't seem spiritual enough. But in fact, what we can see from the scriptures is that Jesus actually commands us to know how to get things done as a part of the path of making ourselves productive for him. So, uh-oh, connection lost. Okay, next slide. Excellent. So what I'm going to show you from the scriptures is not only that the Lord wants us to be productive, but he, he wants us to get involved in learning productivity practices and tactics. And it's really neat to see this. And we see this right away in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. This is the core New Testament text on time management. And it says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So there's productivity, making the best use of the time. And then it goes on, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we're talking about productivity and time management here. Make the best use of the time. And Paul treats that as a parallel concept to walking as a wise person. Do you see that? So a lot of times the way the scriptures 
talk is they'll say the same thing in different ways. And by looking at the different ways they're describing the same thing, each, each way of describing it adds a new dimension. And here, making the best use of the time is parallel with walking as a wise person. So we need to ask, what does it mean to walk as wise people? What does that mean? And one of the first things we think of, and this is something Paul is actually alluding to, is Proverbs 11.30, which says, He who wins souls is wise. And Paul is definitely alluding to this in Ephesians 5. Most of the commentators on this passage will say when Paul is saying we should walk as wise people, he's commending to us the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, and there are some wisdom psalms. Paul is commending that to us as Christians and saying, you ought to learn from those passages of Scripture. Of course, you ought to learn from all Scripture. But he's especially commending those sections of the Scripture to us as useful to our time management and living productive lives for the glory of God. And specifically, his statement, walk as wise people, is hooking up with Proverbs 11.30, he who wins souls is wise, which is evangelism. So Paul is saying part of walking as a wise person and using your time well is doing evangelism. There's no question. And this also is a component of time management that secular thinkers can't bring in because they don't have God as part of their picture. And they miss out one of the most important things you can be doing with your time, which is pointing people to God. So with a God-centered perspective, we're able to bring that in and realize one of the best uses of our time on this planet is to point people to God and do evangelism. <clears throat> but that's where the church for the last 80 years or so has sort of overcorrected though and gone uh, off a cliff, so to speak. Since evangelism is so important, some people have sort of drawn the conclusion or at least lived as if evangelism is the only important thing. And other things like our secular work and secular activities are not important and only exist as a platform for evangelism rather than being meaningful in themselves. And Paul's understanding of productivity and wisdom actually militates against that because there's another passage in Proverbs that Paul is referring to. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 which also uses that same terminology, be wise. And here it's not evangelism that's in view, but productivity, even of the seemingly secular type. Here we read, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So this proverb is also talking about wisdom, what it means to live as a wise person. And here we have in view not evangelism, but productivity. In fact, even the, even the process of productivity, learning how to be productive, the, the nuts and bolts of what it takes to get things done are in view here because here the ant is being commended to us. <clears throat> and what we see here is actually the two components of personal productivity. The two components are personal leadership and personal management. Personal leadership has to do with knowing what you ought to be doing, making decisions, defining your work, knowing the right things to get done. That's personal leadership. And we see the ant exhibits that because it says, without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer. In other words, the ant doesn't have anyone telling her what to do, yet she knows what to do anyway. 
and the ant is being commended to us. We are being told to be like the ant. In other words, like in your job, don't have a wait until told mentality. Take initiative. Don't be a mere order taker. Don't be a mere ruler, rule follower. Be someone who proactively anticipates needs and get things done. We are to be self-governing, in, in other words, under God. That is at the heart of being a, a truly mature and productive person, a person who can manage themselves, govern themselves without another person telling them what to do. Just as the ant governs herself, knows what to do without always being told, that is an essential part of being a mature and productive person. And that's personal leadership. Then the second component of personal productivity is personal management. And that's about once you know what to do, it's about doing it with discipline and determination and excellence. That's personal management. Personal leadership is knowing what to do. Personal management is actually doing it. And we see the ant exhibiting that when it says she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So she knows what to do and she actually does it. She doesn't say, well, let's see, we got to prepare the bread in summer and then sleeps in and just lets time go by, she takes action on what she knows to do. That's personal management. And as Christians, we need to have both. We need to have both aspects, personal leadership and personal management. <clears throat> it is a very exciting thing that this passage is telling us that knowing how to get things done is part of wisdom. So if we want to live holistic Christian lives and be wise in all, system, in all senses, we need to know how to get things done. We need to know how to navigate our lives and handle the seemingly secular aspects of life. It is an essential part of biblical wisdom. The Bible does not have this truncated view of life that only the spiritual activities matter and the rest of the stuff we just endure. Both aspects of life matter. Both are committed to us in Proverbs and Ephesians 5 as aspects of wisdom. So this is amazing. It leads to the next question. So God wants us to be productive and he wants us to care about productivity tactics and systems. And we see that right from scripture. <clears throat> what that does then is lead to the question, what does it mean to be productive? Because in order to actually be productive, you need to know what it means. You need to know the goal. And there are a few things here. And the most important thing you can remember is productivity is effectiveness first, not efficiency. Most of the time when people think about productivity, they think of efficiency, getting more done faster. But that is an incomplete view of productivity because it doesn't matter how fast you're getting something done if you're getting the wrong things done in the first place. Peter Drucker says, there is nothing less productive than doing more efficiently something that doesn't need to be, need to be done at all. So we need to care first about effectiveness, doing the right things before we care about efficiency. Or think about, you know, if I go to the store to get a carton of milk, but come home with a carton of orange juice, it doesn't matter how fast I got to the store and how fast I got home, efficiency, because I got the wrong thing. Efficiency only matters if you're already doing the right things in the first place. And that's why the most productive thing you can do is not learn how to do things faster, but learn how to identify what the right things are to get done in the first place. That's actually the best form of efficiency because when you know what the right things are to get done, you can cut out a lot of things from your life. And that is actually far more efficient than getting the right tactics in place. You, you can just lop off whole segments of tasks that don't need to get done at all. So 
effectiveness first, not efficiency. And then second, intangibles and not just tangibles. Another misconception people have about productivity is that it's only about concrete, measurable production. So cranking out widgets. So the more emails I get answered in a day, the more productive I am. Some people even say to me, well, they have a misunderstanding of productivity and they say, oh, um, I, I believe people matter. Why are you talking so much about being productive and getting things done? <clears throat> As though there's this dichotomy between productivity and relationships. But that's not true. The best productivity thinkers recognize that relationships are productive. And being truly productive is not just about the tasks you get done, but it's about building up relationships with people. And a lot of times that gets overlooked because it's harder to measure. It's harder to measure relationships. But relationships matter immensely. It is productive to spend time with relationships. In fact, if your plan for the afternoon is to get through your email, get 100 emails done, but you don't get any emails done because a coworker comes in with a significant problem that does need to be addressed at the time, they need encouragement and wisdom, and you spend that afternoon helping your coworker, even though you didn't get any emails done, that was productive because you were serving someone. So that's what I mean by intangibles. Intangibles are productive. In other words, relationships matter just as much as concrete tasks. You can think in terms of being efficient with things so you can be effective with people. Or one of the reasons you wanna learn about productivity and being efficient with things is so you can have more time with people. That is one of the best benefits of learning productivity skills. But more specifically, we can, we can dive in even further as Christians into what it means to get the right things done. So a good definition of productivity is getting the right things done. But secular thinkers have to stop there. But we can go further and say, well, what are the right things? And as Christians, we know the right things to get done are the things God wants done. So here's how we can define productivity in a gospel-centered sense. Getting done the things God wants done. So we need to ask the question, though, but what does God want done? And the answer is loving your neighbor. I just gave the answer away. Back up one slide if you can. Let me ask you guys. <laughs> now you know the answer, so it, it taints what you're going to say. But what would you say? What does God want done? Loving your neighbor. Does anybody disagree? <laughs> does anybody think God does not want us to love our neighbor? Okay, no one disagrees. And what I'm arguing is this, is this is at the heart of what God wants done because it is the greatest commandment. So loving our neighbor is not incidental to our productivity. It is the definition of our productivity because it is at the heart of how God wants us to live. So what does God want done? He wants us to love our neighbor. He wants you to live a life of love. And we actually see this in the core New Testament text on time management, Ephesians 5 again. Now, remember how I talked about kind of the parallelism and saying the same thing in different ways, and that sheds light on the meaning of the biblical author? Well, if we keep reading here, we see Paul does that again. In the first part of the verse or the passage, he had talked about making the best use of the time. So there's time management. And then notice how then at the end of the passage, he speaks in terms of understanding what the will of the Lord is. In other words, making the best use of the time is parallel to living according to God's will. If you want to make the best use of the time, then you need to understand what his will is and do it. That's what it means to make the best use of the time. 
right? So this is right here in the text. I'm not making this up. I'm not coming in with some crazy idea I thought of. It's right here in the text. If you want to make the most use of the time, best use of the time, you need to get done the things God wants done. Now, I've said he wants love to get done, right? He wants us to get love done. Here's what's amazing. We can see that not simply from inference, from theological inference, which is valid, but from the context of Ephesians 5 itself. Because what we see is way back at the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 and 2, Paul told us what the will of the Lord is. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So <clears throat> this is the heart of the New Testament ethic, to walk in love because that's how Christ lived and lives. So when Paul says in verse 17, understand the will of the Lord, he's referring back to this. The will of the Lord is that we walk in love. And since being productive is defined by what the will of the Lord is, that means being productive means living a life of love. So if you want to truly be productive in God's eyes and get done what he wants done, then you need to live a life of love. Now, there's two problems with this, however, and they're probably obvious. Oh, let me give you one more passage. I won't read it. Everyone knows this. The great commandment. Love God, love your neighbor. There is more confirmation of what I'm talking about, right? Okay. <clears throat> now, here are the two big misconceptions, okay? The, the problem, when I when we say, okay, to be productive means to live a life of love, there are two big problems. And it comes down to the fact that that sounds ambiguous. What does it actually mean to live a life of love? How, how does that relate to actually being productive? Or more specifically, there's two problems. First, we can think it's boring. And second, we have a narrow, truncated view of love. We think love is something that happens mainly at church or on missions trips rather than in our everyday lives. And so it's hard for us to connect the concept of love to being productive. So let's address these in turn. First, why do we think it's boring? Why do we think love is boring? And the answer is the concept of Christian morality has been hijacked by boring people <laughs> who have reduced morality to the avoidance ethic. And it's deranged cousin, the boycott ethic. So I love John Piper. Obviously, I worked there for 13 years, and he's got this great book called Don't Waste Your Life. It's about how to live a life that counts. Live a life for the glory of God. And in there, he talks about something called the avoidance ethic. And it's the view that the Christian life is mainly about avoiding bad. And there certainly is something to that. We do need to avoid evil. No question. The problem is when we think that is the full scope of what God requires of us. And it's not. The Christian ethic is not chiefly about avoiding evil, but about proactively doing good. Because that's what love is. Think about the command, love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love yourself? You love yourself proactively. So if I'm driving down the highway and I look at my gas gauge and I see it's getting, on, getting closer to empty, I don't say, I'll wait till I run out of gas to fill up. I anticipate my need. I pull into the gas station before I run out of gas. I'm being proactive to address my needs. And we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. So if we love ourselves proactively, that means we are to love others proactively. And I don't love myself simply by avoiding evil. I love myself by 
doing proactive good for myself, getting food, exercising. I make plans even for my welfare. And Jesus is not saying that's bad. You shouldn't live that way. He's saying rather what you do for yourself, do that for others as well. Make the measure of your love for yourself and the way you seek your own welfare, the measure for how you treat others. So that's the proactive ethic. And Piper brings this out very well. He says, you know, he says, the person who gets to the end of his life and stands before Jesus and says, hey, I spent my evenings having good family time watching clean PG-13 movies is probably not going to escape the charge that he wasted his life because he did not focus as well on the other component of Christian morality, proactively seeking the good of others. So this is at the heart of the Christian ethic. So what we need to do is avoid the avoidance ethic. If you want to avoid something, yes, avoid evil, but also avoid the avoidance ethic, the notion that the the Christian life is chiefly about avoiding things, and embrace the proactive ethic that the Christian life is about finding inventive and creative ways to meet the needs of others. And when you understand love in this way, you see it's exciting and fun. Nobody's going to get all that excited about the avoidance ethic. But when we understand that love is adventurous, we can get excited about that. That's really neat. I mean, I remember in high school listening to a Christian speaker who was talking about all these creative things he did for the good of others. And I was like, that's amazing, because at that time in high school, I was kind of into coming up with inventive ways to create mischief, because I thought it was kind of fun. And what he opened my eyes to is, by turning away from a life of mischief, I wasn't turning away from a life of fun and an enjoyable life. You can take the creativity that a lot of teenagers put towards doing mischief and put that same creativity towards doing good. And what I'm saying is that's the Christian ethic coming up with creative ways to meet the needs of others. And that's exciting. It shows love is not boring. So what I want to say is serving is steak, not spam. Serving is steak, not spam. Serving is steak, not broccoli. And originally I wanted to put that on the back of the book, like at the top. And they said, well, you might might offend like vegetarians. And I was like, it's okay to be vegetarian, but... I don't want to offend any vegetarians, so we went with the safer approach, and it says serving others to the glory of God. (laughs) It's not quite as interesting and intriguing, but if we think of serving others as broccoli, we're not going to be excited about it. But when we realize it's steak, we are to take joy in doing good for others, that's exciting. Some passages on this, consider Titus 2.14, which says, Jesus died to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And I almost called the book Zealous for good works, because that's the Christian ethic. And that's what productivity practices exist to do, actually, enable you to be more effective in doing good for others. I love the way Charles Spurgeon puts this. He says, let us be on the watch for opportunities of usefulness. Let us go about the world with our ears and our eyes open, ready to avail ourselves of every occasion for doing good. Let us not be content till we are useful, but make this the main design and ambition of our lives. That nails it. That's the proactive ethic that I'm talking about. That's the meaning of love, going about the world with your ears and eyes open, looking for needs you can meet. And that's at the heart of love, meeting people's needs. And that means, like Jonathan Edwards says, 
A loving person is quick-sighted to discern the needs of others. So it means you don't wait for them to ask. You anticipate needs and meet them. That's at the heart of being a loving person. That's what Spurgeon is saying here. So be on the watch for opportunities of usefulness. Now, that raises the question, though, where do we love our neighbor? And that addresses the second issue with making love the heart of productivity. It seems like it doesn't have anything to do with our everyday lives, our jobs, where we spend most of our time. But actually, the Reformers taught that one of the chief ways we obey the command to love our neighbor as ourselves is in our vocations, in our jobs. Because that's where you spend most of your time, and that's part of the purpose of any job. It's to meet needs. And this is exciting, because then we realize that all of life is an opportunity to serve others and glorify God. So in other words, doing good works. Good works are not simply rare and special things that we do, like volunteering at a soup kitchen or going on a short-term mission trips to Africa. Those are important things to do. Those are good works, but that's not chiefly what the Bible means when it talks about good works. In the biblical view, good works are anything you do in faith, anything for the good of others and the glory of God. And that means you can be doing good works all day long by recognizing that your job is one of the chief avenues in which you do good works for people and serve people. Here's the way we often think. We often think of so-called secular activities off on the right side, things like doing our jobs, commuting to work, Sorry, the font is small there. <clears throat> and then we think of those things are off on the right and like never land. Like we don't know how they connect to our Christian faith. And then the stuff on the left is what we think of as good works. Bible study, prayer, um, going to Sunday service. And we think of good works just as spiritual things. And the other things lack meaning to us because we don't know why they matter or if they matter. But in reality, see, that's especially depressing because I, I did a calculation once and the the spiritual activities only count up to about 8% of our lives. And that's assuming one hour quiet time every day. And I don't think, I don't think most people do a whole hour. Raise your hand if you do. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Okay, she does. Way to go. So that's a very generous estimation of how much time we spend doing spiritual things. And it adds up to only 8%. So what about the other 92%? How does that integrate with our Christian lives? And the answer is... Because we love others in our everyday lives, that other 92% is also among the good works that we are called to do. Go back one slide. That is actually the Christian doctrine of vocation. You are able to do literally everything you do, including secular work, to the glory of God. And therefore, all of life matters and is an avenue for doing good. This integrated view of life is very exciting. And I argue that even sleeping is a good work. We need to know, we need to know how sleeping integrates with our Christian lives. And my answer is, it's a good work. If you do it for the glory of God and partly for the good of others, you know, it re-energizes you to serve. Sleeping is a good work. That's pretty exciting. Tying your shoes is a good work. I've seen people blog, you know, they say, I think even commenting on my posts, like, surely tying your shoes is not a good work. That's just such a small, trivial thing. That doesn't count among the good works. I'm, I want to say, what a deficient view of the Christian life. It reminds me of Origen, who, like, I think he said that 
God doesn't know the number of mosquitoes in a swamp because that knowledge is unworthy of God. Wrong, wrong. If God created all things and is Lord of everything, then everything matters. Everything matters. So yes, God knows the number of mosquitoes in a swamp. And of course, to deny that is to deny his omniscience. So big problem. But if God even knows the number of mosquitoes in a swamp and is Lord of everything, that means literally everything can be done to his glory. No exceptions. So that does include tying your shoes. It, what is more trivial than tying your shoes? I can't think of something. And I actually try and wear shoes that don't need tying because I don't like tying my shoes. But think of the most trivial thing you can possibly do. And if it's not sin, it can be done to the glory of God and is pleasing to God if done in faith. This is a fully comprehensive view of the Christian life. Nothing is excluded. This brings great meaning to our lives. It infuses the everyday, ordinary things we do with amazing significance because they're ways of worshiping God and serving others. That's incredible. <clears throat> with all this in view then, this is my new definition of productivity, a gospel-centered definition. To be productive means to unleash your gifts, talents, and energies for the good of others to the maximum possible extent in all spheres of life for the glory of God on the foundation of the gospel. And there's a ton in that definition and I'm not gonna unpack all of that. But you see, since the aim of our lives is to glorify God by doing good for others, then the meaning of productivity is to unleash yourself to do that. Product productivity practices and tactics exist to enable you to be more effective in doing good for others. Which leads to the question, what is the best way to be productive. So now we're getting into the issue of strategy. <clears throat> if, if productivity is about loving others and we see we can love others in our jobs and everyday lives, then we need to ask, what is the best way to be productive in these things? And the answer, of course, is <clears throat> to have a guiding philosophy of life based on these things that I've just said. And this helps make productivity very simple. I think it's very helpful to, to understand important realities in terms of their core fundamental principles. So like with websites and making them usable, which used to be a big part of my job at Desiring God, we were able to identify that there's one core principle that helps you see what makes a website usable. And it's what make, don't make people think. Make things obvious, self-explanatory. That's what makes a site usable. And with that one key principle, we were able to do 90% of what it takes to make our website usable. So it's very powerful to boil things down to the core integrating ideas. And you need to do the same with your life. It's possible to have a philosophy of life and a simple one that goes to the core. And what is that simple philosophy of life you should have? It's love. It's exactly what I've been saying. <clears throat> it's what Spurgeon said, your philosophy of life should be exactly what Spurgeon said. Go about your life, every aspect of it, your job, your family, your community, looking for needs that people have and meeting those needs. That's love. That's how we are to live our lives. That's the guiding philosophy that we are to have. Another way to put that is generosity. We can call it generosity. And that's a helpful term in the secular world, if you're talking with non-Christian coworkers about a philosophy of productivity, you can use the word generosity. What we see is 
Productivity is not about making our own lives better, first of all, but finding ways to do good for others and make their lives better. And when we do this, we actually benefit as well. And I have some passages on this. I'm just going to hit this really briefly. And this is also what the best businessers, business thinkers are saying. And what's really cool here is business research confirms the biblical insight that love is the best way to be productive, both for others and yourself. This is Tim Sanders. It's cool. He says, the most important new trend in business is the downfall of the barracudas, sharks, and piranhas in the ascendancy of nice, smart people. And he has a whole book on how being a nice, smart person leads to the greatest business success. And here's one great passage. This is on productivity. Notice, and notice how it says to be productive. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. This is one of the reasons I think generosity, seeking the good of others before ourselves, is central to the Christian ethical mindset. And it is central to how we can impact our cultures. Because this stands out. The person who is in their job and community for the good of others stands out because so many people are in their jobs for their own sake and will even trample on people to advance. So when there's someone who's genuinely seeking the good of others, that stands out. That's an attractive and winsome testimony to the gospel. So I think generosity, that is a gospel-centered ethic of life, is central, thank you, is central to influencing our culture for the gospel and renewing our culture socially, economically, and spiritually. And there's other passages on this we could, we could look at, but we won't. The last question before we end this session and take some questions is, how does this connect to productivity systems and methods? Kind of what I've done is given you a, the worldview component, your ultimate purpose in all your productivity, which is to do good for others. <clears throat> but we also need to connect this to a system. And a lot of times, as I've mentioned, when we think about productivity, we think of systems, tactics, and so forth. So how does this relate to productivity tactics? And answers in this way. What I've just given you is the mission statement component of your productivity system. And so having a mission, knowing your purpose in life is crucial to being productive. It's really the first step. What should your mission be? What I've just told you. Going about the world, doing good for others to the glory of God. That's the mission of the Christian life because that advances God's reputation in the world. And I thought long and hard when I was writing the book, like, should I really recommend mission statements to people or is that just a secular idea? And what I realized as I thought about it was some interesting stuff. Number one, God has a mission statement. Jonathan Edwards argued that God's mission in all that he does is to glorify himself. That's his book, The End for Which God Created the World. So God has a mission. <clears throat> he gave the human race a mission in the creation mandate. The church has a mission. There's a lot of writing right now on the topic of the mission of the church. And there's disagreement over what the mission of the church is but there's nobody saying the church doesn't have a mission at all. Everyone agrees the church has a mission. And so also with our individual lives, we have a mission as well. And we need to know what that mission is. And knowing your mission is key to being productive because if you're doing things that are off mission, you're not being productive because you're getting the wrong things done. Your mission defines what the right things are for you and therefore your mission defines what productivity is. And what we've seen is our mission. There are lots of different ways you can state it and you want to 
state your mission in a way that, is, that most resonates with you. But at root, the mission of every Christian comes down to glorifying God, that is advancing his reputation in the world by doing good for others. And doing good there means recognizing that our jobs are one of the key arenas in which we serve others, and that serving others means having the proactive ethic, not the avoidance ethic. That's the mission. What this gives you then is a grid, a mindset with which to go about all of life, every single area of life. Take this mindset with you, and it allows you to make decisions and make the most productive decisions. In other words, what I've just given you is the grid that helps you know what's best next, the title of the book. How do you know what's best next? Know that your mission is to glorify God by doing good for others, and then make the decisions, do the activities that will bring the greatest good to others, to the glory of God. That's the grid. That's how to know what's best next. There's one last thing I want to ask, and it's this. What will the result of this be? Because there's one objection someone could make to this, and it's if I go about the world seeking to meet the needs of others, what will happen to my needs? Who's going to care about my needs? Am I going to be trampled on and left behind? And unfortunately, sometimes that is the case because we live in an unjust world. But God's design is still that we put the good of others first, as Christ did. And what we find when we do that is actually something amazing. So if we ask the question, well, I'm seeking the good of others before my own. Who's looking out for my good? The answer is amazing and is provided by Jonathan Edwards. And here's what he says. If you are selfish and make yourself and your own private interests your idol, God will leave you to yourself and let you promote your own interests as well as you can. That's problematic. (laughs) We're not going to be so great if we're stuck having to provide for ourselves in that ultimate sense. But Edwards goes on. If you do not selfishly seek your own, but do seek the things that are Jesus Christ's and the things of your fellow human beings, then, and this is what's amazing, then God will make your interest and happiness his own charge. So who will will look out for your interests if you're busy looking out for the interests of others? God will. Now, why is that so important? Edwards goes on, tells us why. He says, and God is infinitely more able to provide for you and promote your welfare than you are. The resources of the universe move at his bidding, and he can easily command them all to subserve your welfare. So that not to seek your own in the selfish sense is the best way of seeking your own in a better sense. It is the directest course you can take to secure your highest happiness. And that's why what I'm advocating, having this mission of seeking the good of others before your own, is ultimately productive. It's obvious that it's productive for other people because you're seeking their needs. What we're seeing here is, counterintuitively, it's also most productive for you because when you live that way, God kicks in and makes your happiness his own charge and he's far more able to provide for your happiness than you are. So as Edward says, By seeking the good of others, that's actually the best way to seek your own welfare, that is your own productivity. So if you make the productivity of others your top priority, God will cause you to be productive in the long run, and you will find that you have been both maximally productive for others and, ironically, yourself. 
So that's the vision, the theological vision of productivity that I want to lay out. And now let's take about uh, 10 minutes or so and do some questions and answers. Mm-hmm. Great question. So the question is, when I say tie your shoes in faith, what am I really saying there? First one I'm not saying, I'm not adding a new burden to people. Like saying, here's something else you got to do. Uh, there's a, a technique to tying your shoes in faith, which, which would be kind of exhausting. Um, what I'm saying is <clears throat> doing anything in faith, including tying your shoes, simply means changing your mindset, changing your motives, realizing that God is pleased when you tie your shoes, because you have to do it in his creation, if you do it for his glory. That is, if you do it as an offering to him. And if you have as part of your mindset the good of others, and when it comes to tying your shoes, the way tying your shoes helps you serve others is that it keeps you like from tripping on your shoes and looking clumsy and looking like a klutz. So everything can be done for the glory of God and good of others, including tying your shoes in that way. But if you just tie your shoes with that mindset, God, I know you want me to tie, tie my shoes because it's before me. I have to do it. If you do it with God in mind, you are doing it in faith, which then turns it into a good work. So that's what I'm saying there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's good. No, that's a great question. So <clears throat> there's a lot of good that we can do. A lot of it is immediately apparent. Some of it is longer term. Are there any filters? So first what I would want to do is affirm the long term. And it's, it's easy to focus chiefly on immediate needs because they're more obvious. But we need to also care about long term needs and the needs that are more difficult to discover and address because a, that's what it takes to really serve people. B, that's how we love ourselves. Like, you know, a high school student maybe chooses to go to college because he's taking into account his long-term needs for job security down the road. So he, he implements a long-term plan, go to college, to address that. And we need to think that way about others too. And Wilberforce is a great example. But even beyond that, it's really cool that in Isaiah 32, 8, we are commanded to make plans for the good of others. What Isaiah says there is, he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. So we're commanded there not just to meet the needs that are right in front of us, but to make plans to address people's needs. And that's what Wilberforce was doing with his sustained fight against slavery. That involved lots of plans to meet the need of ending slavery. And that's affirmed by the Bible. And of course, it also helps us see a great new use of productivity tactics. Like learning how to plan is a big productivity tool, right? And what we see is we can take that and not only make plans for our own welfare, but make plans for the good of others. We can apply that productivity tool to others and their welfare. And that's an exciting thing to do. Now, what are the criteria? How do you know? Part of it has to do with gifting. The same way of, in one sense of almost deciding a job, uh, gift, opportunity, and interest. And Wilberforce had the opportunity because he was in parliament. And he had the interest because he was burdened by the evil of the slave trade. Um, and he had the gift. 
He had the oratory gift. He had the ability to organize people. And so it's really those three things of how to know. And that also helps us not get overwhelmed by trying to address every need. So although the needs out there are abundant and many, and, and I think we need to care about all of them, we can't address all of them equally. We're finite people. We can't address everything equally. So I think each of us, it can be useful to identify a long-term need that we will focus on based on our gift, opportunity, and interest. And for Wilberforce, it was slavery. For some people in here, maybe it'd be human trafficking. Maybe it'd be um, extreme poverty. And, and you get involved with Kiva, making loans to entrepreneurs in the developing world. Or, or it might be um, adoption. Um, identify a long-term need and choose it according to that grid, those three things. Yeah, great question. Yeah. Yes. Mm. It's a great question. So he agrees, thankfully, 90-hour weeks are not sustainable. What if you're in a workplace where overworking is the culture? So I'll tell you first what not to do. So <clears throat> when you act according to an ethic that doesn't overlook overwork, which I'll talk about second, how to do that. But when you do act that way, don't be arrogant about it. I've seen Christians do this. One guy was telling me he was in a workplace where everyone was overworking and he was just insistent on going home at, at five every day and not working more than 40 hours. But he was kind of prideful about it, almost presenting it um, as a way that, that, that made the others feel guilty. And that was not a good witness for the gospel. That was almost like setting himself up as superior to others, which, which is, does not ennoble people to, to want to learn more about the gospel. They feel, they feel put down by Christians. So, you know, another guy, I heard him talk about the whole company was falling apart and his coworkers were freaking out. And his perspective was just, hey, why are you freaking out? God has this under control. But he like kind of said it in a way that seemed to minimize the hurt and pain people were going through. That is not a good witness for the gospel. Weep with those who weep. So don't flaunt your, your gospel-centered security um, to others. But so, that's how not to do it. Now, how, how do you address that culture? I, if you're in charge, then it's easy. That's not what you're asking. <laughs> if you're in charge, just start lifting up other values and giving people permission and encouragement to reduce their workload. But what, what about when that's not the culture? You're not, or when you're not in charge, how do you do it? <clears throat> I think it's useful to be upfront with people. So usually the best thing to do would be to have a talk with your boss, with the manager, so someone who can do something and someone that you're accountable to, have a talk with your manager and just be open and upfront about how you don't believe in overwork. It's not healthy. It's not good for your family. It's not good for the productivity of the company long-term. And just be honest about that. Uh, Patrick Lencioni is a great management thinker and he talks about his whole consulting process is based on openness and authenticity and just being vulnerable with their clients and it actually gets them more clients because that, that builds trust. I think being willing to be open with a person's manager about how, hey, the, the culture here is overwork and I, I can't do that. I don't believe in doing that. Being honest with that and having good reasons can be a very power, powerful thing. And then find a way to exceed expectations within a reasonable time commitment. 
Now that reasonable time commitment might not be 40 hours. Maybe it's 45 hours. Maybe it's 50 hours. There's nothing sacred about a 40 hour week. So some jobs are going to be working more than 40 hours a week. That's okay. It's not a problem necessarily or a sign of overwork to work more than 40 hours a week. But you do need to decide what the boundaries are for your work and be willing to stick to them. And then be like Daniel, like when they wanted him to, I know this like doesn't always work, but um, they wanted to give him the diet that involved eating things that were not, not clean according to the Old Testament. And he came up with a prudent strategy. He said, well, look, let us eat just vegetables. Let's test it out. And at the end of 12 days or however long it was, let's see if we are really less healthy than the others. And they were more healthy than the others. It was a prudent approach. And so then he was able to keep going that route. Come up with a prudent approach to address the overwork that allows you to exceed expectations. So it's a complicated issue and it's not always easily sol solvable, but those are some, some cheap ideas there. Yes. Yep. <coughs> That's right. Yep. It's true. It's a great question. So the question, you know, if you, I mentioned you got 100 emails to do and you don't get any of them done because a coworker has a need and that's productive because you're meeting their need and she's raising, what's your name? Okay. Uh, so she's, I'm going to say that wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so she's raising, but those, all those 100 emails are opportunities to serve. So what do you, how do you think about that? And I ha actually had that in mind when I was giving that analogy because it's totally true. That is an opportunity to serve those 100 emails and those people are not getting served when you're serving um, the person who's in your office. And, but, so what do you do about that? Well, I would advocate you still want to get those emails done. You're just not getting them done that afternoon. So now, and this, this, this sort of leads to the problem of overwork though. So now you got more to do the next day. So you might need to start earlier. And this is, this is where things start to get complicated. And seeking the good of others often involves suffering. It does. Don't take suffering to the extreme, though, by overworking all the time. But do be willing to take on a higher load in order to meet the needs of others. So, yeah. And the reason I advocate there meeting the need of your coworker who's right there overdoing those emails is because it, it's it's... It's the principle of proximity. This is the, that is the most pressing need at the time. Now, we talked earlier today with the staff about importance and urgency. And if that coworker's need is not important, if it's just urgent, but not something that ultimately is important to him or you or, or the company or his life, then it's just a distraction. So I'm assuming there that his need is important. You know, maybe he's going through a tough personal struggle or something like that. It's important. And there what's governing is the principle of proximity. Those emails are in your computer. This guy's right in front of you. So address the need that's right in front of you. And I think we see that like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. There are all sorts of needs all over the world and all over Israel of uh, the Samaritan who's walking down the road. But the guy was, who was laying in the road was right beside him. So address the needs that are right in front of you first, assuming that they are important. But then, yeah, do still do the emails. And the way to improve that analogy would be to, I, I don't know, make it be something that is not so immediately, such immediately of service to people, like emails, uh, like maybe something like, I don't know, you wanted to clean the kitchen. 
that's probably a better, better analogy. So, at the, so in the afternoon, you want to clean your kitchen, and there's a coworker who has a need. Of course, that creates a problem, because how does your, how is your coworker there if you want to clean your kitchen so you're at home? But uh, you get the idea. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Your neighbor came home. So great, great question to raise, and it does bring in, it does bring in some of the complexities that we are confronted with. Yeah, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's good. Okay. Yep, that's good. What was your name again? Renee. Renee. Okay. So the question is, you know, someone has said there's always time to do the will of God. And the first thing I want to, and then, you know, you said more, but the first thing I want to say to that is like, Huh. <laughs> yes and no. Yes and no. Uh, um, because, yeah, like, it would be unreasonable of God to require of us more than is physically possible. So that's true. He, he doesn't hold us accountable to do things that are physically incapable of doing. But there is that passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul says we were burdened beyond our strength. They, they were given more to handle than they were capable of handling. And Paul says God did that so that they would rely not on themselves, but on God who raises the dead. So is there always enough time to do what God wants us to do? I'm going to just answer that provocatively and say no and qualify it. When it seems like God is giving you more to do than you you have time for, what he's looking for is creativity. So you can't do all that by yourself in the time that you have. And God won't hold you accountable to do that because it's literally impossible. But if you enlist others, then maybe you can get those things done in the time that you have. And that's why God gave you more. So you would rely on other people, not just yourself. So at the end of the day, it is ultimately saying God won't give you more to do than you have time for. But it brings in this aspect of creativity and interdependence realizing sometimes he does give us more to do than we can do individually so that we will enlist others. That is the main thing I'd want to say with that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is. So how does that work? <clears throat> I think most of the time it's through character. It's a supernatural enabling that creates us that creates love in our hearts and causes us to love people and have peace. Love, joy, peace, patience. Those are produced supernaturally, not just naturally by the Spirit. And you especially see that when you're able to fulfill Jesus' command to love your enemies. I think that takes a supernatural enabling. Um, I don't think the supernatural uh, power of the Spirit is usually utilized by him like, I know you're not saying this, but like to do miracles, to enable it to be possible for us to do everything before us. I I like the way Martin Luther puts it. um, We are to do everything that's in our power to do in the power of the Spirit. And then God will then sometimes work exceptionally when things are literally beyond what we're capable of doing. And sometimes that happens through providential appointments. So it's not miracles, but it's just this crazy stuff he makes happen. That seemed coincidental, but they're really providential. And I think that will happen. 
And that is, that is a way that, the, that God, especially in especially active ways, intervenes to make things possible. But yeah, at the end of the day, the Christian life is a supernatural life. Um, and that supernatural component is chiefly manifest through character. And character is the working of the Spirit and is the wisdom that James, James talks about, the wisdom from above. That's character. And actually, when, when James talks of wisdom, that's parallel to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, which is an interesting thing. But So to look for the work of the Spirit, look first to character, character development in yourself and others. That is the chief manifestation of the Spirit's work. Or in other words, Christ likeness. Yes. Yeah. In a sense, the implied assumption is that the person who is working for GM or Ford Motor mm-hmm. has the same concern that I have, that I'm concerned mm-hmm. others have. Yeah. You're the employer, but you want yep. some people on the hand. Yep. What if your occupation is a vocation that you, like, all the time you're loving others? Like, for example, like somebody who's a missionary. Yep. Yeah, so, so yeah, so the question is, what about, like, the missionary whose work seems most directly service-oriented, loving others, that can make it harder to know the boundaries, and that, and that is very true. If your job is at GM, it is equally important to the work of a missionary, at General Mills, or Target, or wherever, but it, it, is, it is easier to draw the boundaries between work and the rest of life, because your work is very clearly defined is maybe writing marketing plans or, you know, whatever. And the missionary, those types of needs that he's dealing with, like proclaiming the gospel to people, those are the types of things Christians are to be doing in their free time as well. And the missionary does them for his work, his or her work. And, and it's easy to just keep doing them and not have a boundary. And that's totally true. And it's a big challenge. I don't know if I totally know the answer other than to give permission to that missionary to draw a line and to cease his activities so that he can get the rest and rejuvenation he needs. So the call to love others and even love them radically isn't a call to be tossed to and fro and just be totally torn up by overextending ourselves and being splintered in a thousand directions. The key though is when you, when you draw a line and say, I can't do this, whether it's mentally or, or you're speaking with others about that on your team, is to even draw those lines from love. And what that means is, if you are frustrated that, about people, like, I can't believe it, people just are always asking more and more of me, What's the, what are they thinking? That's not a loving way to develop these boundaries. But if you have the attitude of, I really wish I could help more people, but I, I really can't, then that's a loving way to draw the boundaries, and that's how I think the missionary should do it. And then when drawing the boundaries, though, being open to the exceptions. Because the worst thing in the world is to come across a Christian when you have a real need and, oh, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I've drawn a boundary here. I need rest. When it really is an urgent need, that is not good. So we always still need to have our eyes open for the exceptions. Yeah. Yep. One other question. Yes.
Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. So how to address the people that feel hurt or unloved when you draw that boundary. So sometimes when we draw these boundaries, what we can't do, people can feel hurt or unloved. How do we address that? Yeah, that's hard. And I think that's one reason we say yes more than maybe we ought to. It's not because we're afraid what that person is going to think about us, as though pride is the motive. Sometimes love is the motive we over, for which we overextend ourselves. We don't want the person to feel bad. Uh, I think the best thing you can do is when you're saying no to someone like that, you be able, be willing to and be able to anticipate if the person is going to like be the type of person who feels hurt um, and be willing to point to objective criteria for why you can't help. That helps depersonalize it because a lot of times what makes them feel hurt is they take it personally. If you can point to objective criteria, then they, they're less likely to take it personally and less likely to feel hurt. So for example, I have someone in another state far away that always texts me like, how are you doing? And it's the middle of the day and like, I can't, I can't get into a text message conversation at two in the afternoon. I'm doing other things I need to do. I can't, and you know, I can't do it at eight o'clock either <laughs> because I got other things going on at eight o'clock. And, but that person is important though. They matter. My problem is not with that person. It's with text messages are draining to me and I've got other things I really need to focus on. It's almost akin to like in grade school, people passing notes and like the teacher would be like, you aren't going to learn anything if you're always passing notes. But now we're like passing a thousand times more notes and we're doing it as adults and they're just called text messages. So what, what I need to do with him, and I started to do this, is just say, I have to cut down on the text, my text messaging. I just have, I'm just, I, I, my load is too high. I have to cut back on text messaging. So pointing to objective criteria as the reason I, I can't respond. So that's my best suggestion. Yeah. All right, let's take our final minutes to do section two, productivity tactics, three tactics. So three productivity tactics. So you can walk out of here with three tools you can start using right away. And the first one is a capture tool. Always have a capture tool with you. Why? Why? Because tasks and good ideas come at all times, not just when you're at your desk. So, you know, what, what do you do if you, your boss stops you in the hallway and says, can you do this or that? And you can't do it right away. And you're not at your desk, so you can't write it down. How are you going to remember you have to do that? Some people just tr expect themselves to remember. That's not a good approach because you're, 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 most, you're, you're very likely to forget. So you want to capture that. And that's why you need to always have a capture tool with you. Like a Moleskine journal, you also want your capture tool to have good design because that makes you want to use it better and it makes it more pleasant. And that actually increases your productivity. So caring about good design is productive. So for years, I carried a, a Moleskine journal, but now I just use Apple Notes because it's easier. Like because um, I literally have my phone with me all the time. So that's my capture tool now. So always have a capture tool with you. Now, it doesn't do you any good, though, to capture something and then forget about it, like never look at it again. That's why you need to have a routine for processing the stuff you capture, and I recommend doing that when you are processing your email. So after you get done processing your email, go to your capture tool and take action on the items there or put them on a list if you can't do them right away. So always have a capture tool with you. Project plans. 
These are awesome. I find these super helpful. So a lot of us have projects going on. And it does, by project here, I don't necessarily mean like a huge project, like build a bridge. I mean anything that takes multiple steps. It might be a small project. I mean, whoever organized this tonight, that's a project, organizing this event. And there are certain pieces, you know, like promote it, make it known to people, um, uh, figure out the audio, figure out, you know, all this other stuff. And there are different, lots of different moving parts you need to keep track of a lot of times when you're working on a project. And it just is helpful just to write all those down in a single spot. And that's what I mean by a project plan, just a list of the actions you need to take on the project. And then a lot of projects have other information you need to remember in them. So when I go on a trip, a lot of times I'll create a project plan. And what you see on this one, I know it's hard to see from where you are, but this was a, my trip to Catal the Catalyst Conference in the fall. And there are things I needed to know, like, where's my car? Where did I rent my car from? I'm not going to remember that. Like, even though I, I booked <laughs> my car rental, that, like, I'm not going to remember that. Out of sight, out of mind. So I put the car rental company in my project plan. And this is in the note field, by the way, for the trip. So for the trip, I'd have an all-day event in my calendar, Catalyst Atlanta. And then in the note field is where this goes. So it's easy to access. And I put the car rental company in there. And so when I got to the airport, and I was like, okay, where do I got to go next? Got to rent my car. Where do I go? I just pulled up the note for that all-day event and remembered the car rental company, so I could go there, the, where my hotel was. I'm not going to remember that either, let alone the address. That goes in the project plan. People I wanted to connect with in the project plan. So I'm like, okay, how do I use my time when I'm here? Okay, are these, these are some of the people I want to reach out to. My project plan reminds me of that. In preparing for, like, for my message and the event, I had a list of actions. I need to do this, this, and that, just to keep track of what I have to do. And this is a very powerful tool. And the nice thing is you can do it with any project, and you can do it to the extent that it's helpful. You don't have to do it with every project if you don't want to. Do it with the projects that have pieces you feel you really need to keep organized and coordinated. And David Allen says that um, creating lists ad, ad hoc as they occur to you is one of the most powerful productivity principles you can instill. And that's what project plans enable you to do. A lot of projects, even you have ideas coming to you at all hours of the day and night. Where do you put those ideas? Because you can't act on them all right away capture them in your project plan. And then when it's time to work on the project, you don't gotta say, what was that idea I had? What was that other idea I had? Because they're all captured in your plan. And then you can just work down the list. I did this for my book launch. I had a very comp complicated and extensive project plan for the launch of the book. And it was nice because all the actions, I'd, as I thought of actions, I'd capture them, put them in the plan. Then it was time to execute. All my actions were already there. The thinking was done. And by and large, I, I just had to go down my checklists and get things done. This is a very powerful tool. And you can ask, well, where do I keep these project plans? Um, keep them where it's convenient. And that, that'll be different places for different people. And if it's a convenient place for you, you'll be able to remember that you have it and pull it up and use it. Use project plans. And then planning your week. And this is a way to keep your mission alive. So we talked about your mission, which is do good for others to the glory of God. In order to keep a mission alive, you need to review it routinely. And Stephen Covey talks about that. So you can't just leave your mission at the level of intention. You need to weave it into the structure of your life, and that comes through a process. And weekly planning is the best process for that. So set aside time every week to plan your week. Maybe it's Sunday night. Maybe it's Monday morning. Maybe it's Friday afternoon. Just set aside about a half hour. You can create a recurring appointment on your calendar for that. 
and plan your week. And the first thing you do in planning your week is review your mission statement. That reorients you so you don't forget about it. You don't get off track. You connect with your mission. And then the other thing you do when planning your week is identify the most important tasks you can do that week. And there will be more tasks that you're doing, but this is an opportunity to just be proactive and intentional about your various roles in your life. You can just say to yourself, what are the five most important things I could accomplish this week? And list those. And a lot of times the way you'll come up with those is by looking at your mission statement, saying, well, what, what does my mission statement apply, imply about how I should live? But also recognizing that the whole purpose of productivity is to enable you to do more good for people um, changes the way you will do your weekly planning. Because now you'll come out your weekly planning instead of just saying, what needs do I have? So what do I need to do to meet my needs? Or what does my boss want? So I need to make sure it's on my list for the week. Ask yourself, um, what plans do I need to create for the good of others? What are some needs out there I've identified which I can address? And when you see those needs, you can't meet all of them, but some of them you can, and meet them by turning them into actions for your week. So this is a way of obeying Isaiah 32.8 and planning noble things, using planning for the good of others. So identify people's needs and create tasks that meet those needs during your weekly planning. And what's really great about that is you're not leaving meeting people's needs just as something to remember to do when you think of it. You're creating a process to enable you to do that. And of course, at the one key uh, and central implication of the gospel is to care for the poor. So if you come at your weekly planning with a gospel-centered ethic, one of the things you'll be asking yourself is, who is poor and, more, and marginalized that could use some help or assistance? Maybe there's someone at your workplace who is poor in the sense that they're marginalized. People don't treat them well. People overlook them. People don't see them as valuable. Uh, they're kind of a misfit sometimes socially. Think about people like that because that's how Jesus operated and find ways you can serve them and include them. And what weekly planning does is it allows you to do that intentionally. Because if you don't bring intentionality to that sort of thing, a lot of times it won't happen. So now weekly planning is a tool that helps us obey the commands of Scripture and reflect the gospel more fully in our lives. And that's a very exciting thing. So, but that, at, at a root, that's how you plan your week. Connect with your mission and then identify maybe five of the big things that are most important to get done that week and identify those things on the basis of the ethic of the gospel Name identifying needs and paying special attention to the poor and marginalized. So what will the result of this be for the world? Earlier we looked at what will the result of this be for you? If you seek the good of others in everything you do, what will the result be for the world if you operate in this way? And the result will be this. And this is taught in Ephesians 5, which we don't have time to look at, but it's really cool. What Paul teaches is we don't have to leave the world and become monks to serve God. Rather, we serve God right where we're at from love. And as we do that, as we are productive for the good of others in a gospel-centered way, the light of the gospel shines through our words and deeds, causing some to become Christians. And through all of this, God transforms our cities and the world spiritually, economically, and socially. So going about your life in a gospel-centered way with gospel-driven productivity will have an impact in your community. It is part of God's plan for transforming the world and renewing culture. And think of this, we can say, what can one person do? 
Well, I believe one person can do a lot. But at the same time, think about this. Don't think in terms of what can one person do. Think of what it would be like if hundreds and thousands of Christians were living this way in their jobs, realizing that their job is the chief arena where they are able to serve people and they go about their work for the motive of love for others and seek to do good for others. Thousands of Christians seeking to do good for others in their workplaces would make a massive impact on society. And so if this vision catches on and thousands of Christians operate in their workplaces from love, then through that we can see indeed a major transformation of society spiritually, economically, and socially. So those are three tips. We got three minutes left for questions. Yes. I do. I yeah, I do. I still enjoy those <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't feel guilty. So, yes, I sometimes do mindless things, and mindless things are valuable. They are part of the concept of renewal and rest. So, and that's essential to be productive, but not just for the sake of being productive, it also matters in itself. Just as work matters in itself, so also rest and leisure matter in themselves. So it's right and good to create time for those. And one of my, I, I love watching football. I love the Patriots, because I love Tom Brady. I think he's the best quarterback in the game. So I love watching the Patriots in the fall. I was totally into the Super Bowl this year and uh, was so glad at the end when the Patriots intercepted that pass in the end zone, and I actually prayed for that. I broke my rule, which is never pray for a sporting event. I broke my rule. I felt a prompting from God. I actually, I actually did. So, um, uh, but I, I knew God would do what he sees fit. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, yeah, so I love football, but I, I, do, I do struggle with doing enough mindless things and just resting, because there always is more that we can do. And Technology makes it especially hard just to take time out because you're, now you're always able to do something productive. And that's a big, that is a, a big issue that deserves a lot of thought from Christians. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there is. So the question is, are there seasons of productivity where you realize, oh, maybe you're done with one season, time to move on. And absolutely, that would be at the concept of like, I believe in having like, beneath the level of mission statement, like some long-term objectives that maybe define seasons of life. And that's where that fits. And yeah, it does happen. And, you know, imagine, you know, some missionaries, they go over to the Middle East and they're devoted to planning a church, maybe for five years. And maybe they're, their objective wasn't to be there for 30 years. It was just to get the church off its feet and then turn it over to local leadership or other missionaries. And when it gets there, um, they may realize it's time to move on. Our work here is completed. The work 
in that culture and in that church is not done. Others need to carry that on, but our work with that is done. So absolutely, and that's an important concept, the concept of seasons. I interviewed Craig Rochelle for the book at one point at the Global Leadership Summit, uh, a past, pastor of a life church, and he said, I asked him a similar question, and he said at that stage in his life, um, an important priority was actually focusing on his daughter who was going to be going to college in about a year. So he was saying, I'm reducing my travel for the next year so that I can focus more time at home and, and with her. And that's an example of, you know, kind of a unique season to take advantage of. And then at the end of that, when she goes off to college, he might have said, he might have said to himself, okay, now that is that season it's time for me to shift gears again and, and maybe I'll take on more travel, take on more speaking and those sorts of things. So absolutely. Yes. Uh, it's organized differently in the book. Yes, but, but yes, most of it is in the book, especially the first, yeah, the, the first two sections of the book are on productivity as love. And yes, so I talk about these things and there are more examples and more stuff. And then the Things like weekly, weekly planning has a whole chapter, which goes into more detail than I did. Project plans have a whole chapter. And lots of other things I didn't talk about have chapters. So, yes. Yep, great question. Yes, back there. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I did run into that problem. Yes. I, I found that getting things done actually naturally inclines in that direction. So uh, at first I was doing getting things done, you know, and so I was capturing all sorts of things I had to do and including, as you're saying, things I could do to improve my productivity system. So then I was spending a lot of time tweaking my system. And actually, a lot of people talk about this, that how they feel like they spend too much time tweaking their system, which takes time away from actually getting things done. So eventually what I did is I just quit tweaking my system, just let it go for a while. And then I would maybe realize through that what was really important. But yet, all these things can snowball. And that's why in the book, and when I talk about productivity, I try and bring in the, the issue of importance, and I, I don't go into importance as much in the book as I will in my next one, but distinguishing the important and the urgent and, and using selection, being selective and saying no. So realizing just because you can do something and you thought that it'd be a good idea to do this, it doesn't mean you have to do it. And actually, we need to be very selective. And I think that at the end of the day, that's the answer. A good productivity system does allow you to capture a ton of things and your lists grow and grow. And that can incline you to take on more than you're capable of. So you need to supplement your system with a mindset of reduction and staying to the most essential and the most important. Yep. Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep, choosing between the good and the good. Yeah, that's a great question. So what do you do if 
you know, you whittle it down to the important things, you have five important things, but you can actually only do two. So the first part of the answer is forcing yourself to choose two is part of the way of discerning which two are most important. That by, by forcing that constraint, it forces you to think harder about what, what is truly important and finding the best of the best. So that's actually just the exercise itself will a lot of times lead insight. The other thing is to ask, a lot of productivity thinkers talk about the 80-20 principle. So ask, <clears throat> so realize that 20% of your tasks will produce 80% of your results. And this is, a, this is everywhere, it exists like in every realm, not just with productivity, it's, it's weird. <clears throat> and so with those five things, say which two will produce the greatest results? And there usually there will be two that will be more impactful than the, than the others. So ask yourself that question. It's just the 80-20 principle. And there is going to be an element of subjectivity to it, certainly. You might not always be right. Yep. Yes. Oh, yep. Yep. All right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So to what extent does personality play into this? And it's, it's a really good question because uh, personalities are different. And the last thing that I would want to do is impose something on someone that runs over their personality <laughs> and makes them miserable and then make it even worse by saying, God says you have to do it this way. <laughs> so we don't want to do that. And when I took the, like, the perspectives class, which is on missions, 15 years ago, one of the biggest points they made is like in missions, you, ought, you, you need to make sure to never um, treat a cultural practice as a biblical requirement. And likewise, if the culture, you know, where you're in has a cultural practice that the Bible allows, you are to never say the Bible requires you to get rid of this because you're going beyond scripture. That's a very important thing. And same with productivity I don't want to come in and say, God says you have to do this when he doesn't say that. Uh, now, at the same time, yeah, then there are, other, there are also people who say, like, um, there, there have been books written. There's one book called A Perfect Mess, which argues it's actually more productive not to be organized. So they say it saves time. So, but that's, that's wrong. I actually read through that. <laughs> I read through that book quickly, and I've, I've even tried it out. I've tested uh, periods where I, I don't pay attention to organization and things like that. And it does make me less productive and create more stress. And is that just an issue of personality? The answer is no, because I've tested this. There are people who, um, uh, they are less productive, even though they say it's my personality not to care about this much. They are less productive though, nonetheless. And so the answer comes down to this, okay. There are certain universal principles which are true regardless of personality. And sometimes people make the mistake, they say, well, my personality is this. And they're using their personality to buck a universal principle that is independent of personality. So we need to not do that. But then there are <clears throat> certain aspects of personality which, where, we, where we do have legitimate freedom. And the most productive thing you can do is to work in sync with your personality. So I think part of that comes down to, one example would be like your five pages of notes. I think that's awesome. I think, 
I'm, I think everybody should do that. That's what I do sometimes. Um, but there are some people, you know, they learn differently. Actually, when I was in college and even seminary, I hardly ever took notes because I found that I, I would actually, um, part of it was just trying to save energy. But also I found I, I would learn more sometimes if I just write down the most important things. But then actually when I'm studying a subject though and I'm reading a book, I will take very detailed notes, 15 pages sometimes on a book. I took 15 pages of notes on uh, Tom Nelson's Work Matters because that was my way of when I really need to understand something, I've got to kind of dive in deep and let it go through my head and, and write it out. Um, <clears throat> and that's part of, part of the feature of my personality, I suppose. But Peter Drucker talks about um, there are certain preferences we have for productivity and where people are different and knowing ourselves in those areas is a source of effectiveness. So the example he gives, some people learn better by reading, some people learn better by hearing. So you don't want to force someone who learns better by reading to learn by hearing because you're working against the grain. So know how you work. Or Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, does his best work from 10 at night to 3 in the morning. That's an aspect of his personality. I, don't, I wouldn't want to come in and say, well, well Al, productivity research shows you're most productive if you do your work in the morning, not at night. Because that's an area of indifference. If, he, if his personality is better suited to staying up till three in the morning, that's what he should do. It makes him more productive. But most people aren't going to operate that way. Most people are going to be more productive in the morning. But understand your work preferences and use those. Um, but at the end of the day, it seems like um, at the heart of your question is there are some people which are, which kind of uh, turn away from legitimate and crucial productivity practices. And they do that by saying, well, it's just my personality. And they're using personality to justify bad thinking. And so I think the biggest answer there would be Scott Belsky's work. He wrote a book called Making Ideas Happen. And it's on productivity for the creative world where a lot of people think the essence of being creative is not to have structure and routine and just be spontaneous. Don't worry about an organized desk. Don't worry about having a task list. And what he found in his research is the most productive creatives actually have routine and structure. So the evidence shows that these things are necessary. To what extent are you going to go? That becomes an issue of personality, but everybody needs to have some set of structure and routine. So, yeah. That's, that's, okay, one more question. Yeah, right here. What do you believe about the Sabbath? Oh, yeah, that's great. Great question. So the question is, what do I believe about the Sabbath and how that relates to productivity? That's good because that, that falls into the, the especially theological realm. So I do not believe the Sabbath is for today. I think, you know, some people, they come in when they're talking about work and productivity, they will justify the importance of rest by saying, look, God commands us to take a Sabbath day. And therefore, we ought to take a Sabbath day. And I think the Old Testament Sabbath, it does show we need to rest, and that's wired into how we are to live. So rest is essential. But I don't think it's required to even take one day off in seven, because I think the Sabbath was one of the signs of the Old Covenant, and Colossians 2, 16 and 17 shows that it's repealed. It says, let no one act as your judge in relation to a festival, new moon, or a Sabbath day. Some people try and say, oh, Paul's not talking about the weekly Sabbath there. That's nonsense. That's exactly what he's talking about. They say, oh, there's other Sabbaths in the Old Testament. Well, but the main is the weekly Sabbath. And notice the progression he has there. Festival, new moon, Sabbath day. 
there's a temporal progression there. Festivals, less rare, new, man, new moon, more frequent, down to the most frequent, the weekly Sabbath. So we are free in Christ from the Sabbath command. Does that mean we shouldn't rest? No, we should rest. But I think John Calvin gets it right where he says, um, we, we're, we take one day off in seven because it's a good idea. So I do think it's a good idea, but I don't believe in, in advocating for it as though it's a requirement, as though the Sabbath command continues over today. And there are actually whole books written on the, you know, the concept of Sabbath and work this into your life because God commands it. I think they're, they're basing a good idea on, 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 on some bad theological thinking there. And sometimes, look, it just takes, it takes seven days of work to get done what God has for you to get done. So uh, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. So, and related to this, some people think like if you're hurrying, you're outside of God's will. That, that's just bringing in these bad, almost Western concepts of productivity. Like in the book of Acts later on, at one point it says that Paul was in a hurry. So it, some people say, oh, Jesus never hurried. So if we're hurrying, it means we're outside of God's will. It's just over-spiritualizing. Um, Paul hurried. Sometimes we really do have to hurry. There really is urgency. That doesn't mean you're out of God's will. That doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. If you're always hurrying, well, that's a bad thing. You can address that. But hurrying itself is not wrong. And likewise, we need the freedom. Like the New Testament is about freedom. And it's freedom to serve. And it takes working seven days to serve people the way they ought to be served um, with the responsibilities you have. I think sometimes that's okay. But don't make a general practice of that because you'll wear yourself out. So don't hear me saying don't take a day off. Take two days off a week, you know, and I think some weeks we should take more off. Um, but just don't base it in the ongoing legitimacy of the Sabbath command. So, all right. Thanks so much for coming out. <laughs>